Now, we're walking straight through Luke. <coughs> Quick cough there, excuse me. But it's amazing to me how God works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's Ephesians chapter 1. We'll read that anyway. Because uh, if you were here Wednesday night, and if you're not coming on Wednesday night, I, you definitely should. I was in the uh, class with the youth. Uh, but later on, I posted Brother Eddie's sermon online. I got to listen to it while I was uh, while I was uh, record, while I was uh, getting it ready to post it online and and all that. And uh, he was talking about God has a root for you. God has a root for you, and it's not always the way that we want it. And this text that we're going to see here, Luke chapter two, it's going to go right along with that. So God is God is planned today that we're going to be saying pretty much the same thing that God told. Uh, God spoke to Brother Eddie's heart about us preaching, uh, him preaching Wednesday night. He's going to tell us uh, pretty much three things that we're going to see. And I'm just going to tell you where we're going. That way you know when we get there. I was going to do all 20 verses, try to get 1 through 20 and just get it behind me and go on and look. But there's just so much in the first seven. So we're not going to get much, much further past that. Um, what we're going to see is that, number one, and these are no-brainers for us, but we're going to see them played out in our lives and in the Scripture here, is that, that God is in control. God is in control of all things. We don't have to worry about, we don't have to worry about things going on. We don't have to worry about, is everything going to be okay? We don't have to worry about any of those things because God is in control. And the second thing we're going to see is that God doesn't always work the way that we expect Him to. He doesn't always say yes for everything that we ask him because some of the things we ask him, let's face it, are just downright stupid. If, if we knew all the things that God knows, we wouldn't be asking for some of the things that we ask for. So he doesn't always work the way that we think he should, but he's always working for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He's in control and he's always working sometimes in ways that you may not expect. And the last thing is God is working for your real problem. What's really the issue? And of course, I'll give you a hint. I'll open the door before we even get there. It's going to be sin. That's the problem. That's the real problem. We have all kind of issues that we pray about. We all have all kind of issues that we want God to work in. But the real problem in all of our lives is sin. The real problem is sin. And until that problem is dealt with, nothing else really is going to matter. That problem has to be dealt with in our lives. And so that's what we're going to see today. So I'm going to just read all seven verses in chapter two. We're going to read it. We're going to uh, look at it together, and uh, I like to call it the tale of two kings because we're going to see two different kings, one who thinks he's a king and is not really a king, and one who doesn't look like a king, but he is the king of kings. And so let's read this in, in chapter 2. And it says, And it came to pass in those days there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria and all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth, forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. You all know that text. Most of, Some of y'all could probably have quoted that entire passage without even looking at the scripture, just because we know it so well. But the first thing I want you to see is these two kings that we're going to talk about, one that thinks he's a king and looks like a king by worldly standards, 
But there's another that is humble and doesn't look anything like a king, but he is the true king. This first king is Caesar Augustus. You see that in the in the, the first verse, it says there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Now, uh, Caesar Augustus, his name was Octavian and they gave him the name of Augustus. He, he reigned, ruled over uh, the Roman Empire from about 30 B.C. to uh, 14 A.D. So he was right there as Christ was being born. He was the ruler. He was the emperor. And you couldn't get, you couldn't get a more powerful looking by worldly standards king, ruler. This guy had the power of life and death in his hand. When he spoke, Rome was about uh, 14, 1500 miles from Israel. And so when he spoke, Whatever word he spoke, it affected everybody. 85 million people in the Roman Empire at this time. When he spoke the word, he had the power of life and death. He could say who lives. He could say who dies. He is the name Augustus that they gave him means the exalted one. So you can imagine how big this guy's head was. He, he was the, according to the, according to the world, he was the exalted one. He's, uh, there's been inscriptions found where it says, uh, Caesar Augustus is the quote unquote savior of the whole world. And so later, even as Luke was writing this later on, uh, they deified him and they were built shrines to him and people worshiped him like a God after he was, after he was dead. And so this guy really was by worldly standards. If you were to look, there's no power greater than him in the Roman empire. At the time that Jesus was born, at the time the Messiah was brought forth, you would have looked and you would have seen all of this is under the control of this wicked empire, this wicked pagan. You know, they didn't care anything about what was happening in Israel, didn't care anything, didn't know anything about promises God has made or fulfillments of salvation or redemption or messiahs or kings to be born that could care less about any of that stuff. All he was was the ruler of all the known world. And by worldly standards, you couldn't get more powerful than this guy. He, when he said move, people from all over the world moved. When he said, okay, this is the word that he gave. There's going to be a decree. We're going to tax everybody. And in order for us to tax everybody, people have to go back to their ancestral home and they have to register. And that way we know how many people, every man has to go back with his family to where he was born and he has to register so we know how many people we can get taxes from. And so when he says this, even people in the far reaches of the Roman Empire have to move. When his word goes forth, Caesar Augustus, when his word goes forth, people move. Even in the far reaches of Bethlehem and Nazareth. It was, it was like this guy's one word causes interruption in people's lives. They have to stop what they're doing. They have to stop whatever trade they're in. They have to stop everything and they have to go back to where they were born. They have to register. They have to sign up. They have to get, get ready to be taxed and they have to go home. And of course, you and I know that, that this is, this is why Joseph had to go back to Bethlehem. It says Joseph was in the line of David. Joseph was in the line of David, so he has to go back to Bethlehem. It's about 70 miles from Nazareth, Nazareth to Bethlehem. And so this is what I want you to see. If it had not been for Caesar, given this decree that everybody needs to go home and be taxed, register to be taxed, Jesus might have been born in Nazareth, don't you think? It probably would have been Mary and Joseph's idea that it's probably best that Jesus be born 
in Nazareth. This is their hometown. This is where they're comfortable. Presumably, it's where their house is. That's where they live. They're going to go back to Nazareth, after all, in the, in the text. And so this is where they would, want it, they would have wanted him to be born. This is where it would have been most comfortable for, them to be, for him to be born. This is where he was supposed to be born. If Mary and Joseph are making plans, they're getting themselves ready, understanding, hey, we know this is going to be the Messiah. God has told us he came through Gabriel to Mary and told her that your son is going to be uh, the Messiah. He's going to have the throne of his his father, David. He's going to be the one that saves the world. And Mary said, let it be done to your servant. Just as you said, she submitted in faith to God and to his plan. And so she's thinking if she's making plans, you know, you're pregnant nine months and you're you know, you're waiting for this baby to come. You know, she's probably getting the baby room ready. You know, I don't know if they did all that the same way we do. She's painting and, and getting the crib set up. And this is how it's going to happen. And this is the room that we're going to keep him in. And we, we're getting all this stuff ready. And all of a sudden, this pagan king, 1,500 miles away, makes a decree. And we say, we got to go where? We got to travel 70 miles, presumably on a donkey. Maybe they walked. We don't know for sure. But she's nine months pregnant and has to go 70 miles on foot to Bethlehem. This is probably not the way she expected it. And who is this king, this Caesar Augustus, who has said that we, 1,500 miles away, have to go pregnant and about to have a baby, have to go 70 miles to our ancestral home to register for some tax. It didn't matter that she was pregnant. It didn't matter that she had a baby coming. It didn't matter that, you know, you know how pregnant women get when they get about that time. It didn't matter about any of that kind of stuff. When Caesar said move, you moved and you moved with expediency. And so Mary gets put on a donkey or walks or however they got there. They go 70 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And it's all because this guy in Rome who fancies himself in charge of the world decides we're going to start taxing everybody. But in reality, in reality, God foretold in Micah chapter five, verse two, that the Messiah wouldn't be born in Nazareth. He would be born in Bethlehem. If you, if you go back, you can write that next to that passage. Micah verse five, chapter 5, verse 2. God prophesied, God promised, God foretold that the Messiah who would come, the ruler, the true king. It says in Micah 5, 2, a ruler is going to come out of you, Bethlehem. This ruler that would be born, this king of kings that would be born, would not be born in Nazareth. He would be born in Bethlehem. So this king in Rome, this Augustus Caesar who fancied himself in charge of the entire world was still at, was still subjected to the promise of God. What I want you to see first, before we start getting into uh, the Messiah and his birth is that God is in control. God is in control even when there's a wicked king ruling over the whole world. Even when there's a king who doesn't care anything about God, who doesn't care anything about God's people, who doesn't care anything about what's going on in Nazareth or Jerusalem or Bethlehem, anything about the promises of God. He's not, doesn't care anything about saviors or messiahs or, or 
somebody's going to uh, come and take away the sin of the world. He doesn't know anything about that, doesn't care anything about that. He is just trying to flex his powerful muscle, but yet he still is at the mercy of what God says will happen. It wasn't Caesar's decree that forced Mary and Joseph to go to Bethlehem and the the child to be born there. It was God's decree that he had decreed hundreds of years earlier that, no, this child, the Messiah, this ruler would be born in Bethlehem. Are y'all with me? Okay. God is in control. He's in control. And so when, when they, they might be thinking, well, who is this Caesar who says that we have to go somewhere? Who is this guy who thinks he's in control? It was God. The Proverbs 21, I believe it's 21, 1, said the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord and he turns it whither so well he desires. The heart of the king is in the hand of the, there it is. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. It says God is in control. That should give you and I some rest. It should give you and I some peace. When you go out and you look at the world, you know, you'd be hard pressed to find any godly rulers anywhere. It doesn't matter what level we're talking about, whether it's city level, state level. I mean, over in other countries, you see all the chaos going on. You see all the fights and the wars and the, and the, and the people trying to kill Christians and cutting their heads off. And it's just bad. Everything's bad. It's bad everywhere. And I can, I can agree with you. It, it looks like the world's going to hell in the handbasket, but understand that God is in control. God is in control and he's still keeping his promise. He's faithful to keep his promise. And here's the most important thing. He's able to keep his promise. Even when there is a ruler like Caesar in Rome that basically is doing anything he wants to at any time he wants to. He's, it's not like today where you have Congress and you have the judges and you have the president and you have all these different. It was Caesar's way or it was death. When he said move, you move. But even when it's like that, even when there's a pagan ruler that could care less about anything going on way over in this back country, uh, Bethlehem, Judea region, God was still able. He is still able to keep his word. He's still able to keep his promises. He's made promises to you. We talk about how the world is bad and all that and God is still in control, but it should give you rest that even today in your life, God is in control. That means that whatever's going on in your life, whatever situations you're facing, you're thinking there's no way out. There's no way that these circumstances can ever turn out for my good. How can God be in the midst of this? How can he be working to uh, for good but for those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose? No matter what situation you have, no matter what circumstance that you're battling with, no matter what fears or doubts or worries that are in your life, understand it may not seem like it to you now, But God is in control. He is able. He is able to keep his promise to you. He is faithful to always keep his promise to you. There is nothing in heaven and earth that can stop God. No principality, no power, no ruler, no anything in this world or in the next that can come against you, God's God's people, and prosper. His will for you is that you be conformed to the image of his son. His will for you is that you would grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. His will for you is that you would be brought safely into his arms 
after this life is over. And nothing in this world can stop that. Nothing in this world can hinder God's will or God's purpose. So you've got this one king on the one hand. He's over in Rome. He's dictating what's going to happen. He's dictating the decrees that are going forth and his will looks like it's law. But on the other hand, you have God who is in control. And when God makes a promise, if he made a promise 500 years ago, uh, as far as, you know, he made a promise through David, through Micah, through all these things, When he made that promise, he's able to fulfill his word. He's able to take the heart of the king and turn it toward where he wants it to go. He's able to take your circumstance, whatever's happening in your life, and turn it for good. Turn it so that it it fulfills his word, fulfills his promise. God is in control. That should give you some rest. If you know Christ, if you're born again by the Spirit of God, that should give you some peace. You know, it doesn't matter what goes on. It doesn't matter that I turn on the news, it's always bad. It doesn't matter that there are things in my life that are coming against me and and attacking me and it never seems like I can get ahead. And God has promised and God is able to fulfill his word. But understand, it may not always be the way that you expect it to be. You got this one king, this one king, Caesar Augustus. He says, the whole world's going to be taxed. Everybody go back to your ancestral home and register so I can tax you. And from all the worldly view, it looks like he is in control. He is the one in charge. No one thwarts his will. When he says move, move. He looks like he looks like an all powerful king. And on the other side of the world, as this is going on, there is one born who is the true king. And this king doesn't look anything like a king. It says that in, in verse three, all went to be taxed and Joseph and went up from Galilee, the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, great with child. As they went to Bethlehem, 70 miles from Nazareth, she was great with child. And so that it, it came that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she would be delivered. You need to understand God is in control, but you, you, you got to understand. And this is something that I, I heard Brother Eddie hit on two or three times Wednesday night. God's ways are not your ways. God's ways are not our ways. And he's not always going to be working in exactly the way that you want. He will always be working to be faithful to his promise, to be faithful to his word and to bring to pass what he has said will come to pass. But he doesn't always do it the way that you want it done. Can you imagine what Mary's thinking? Riding a donkey, nine months pregnant. I'm assuming she's riding a donkey. Nine months pregnant, having to go 70 miles. This is not, this is not, you know, like air conditioning, you know, sitting in the bucket seat leather with the, you know, this, this is on a donkey or walking 70 miles. Why in the world? She, she had probably already assumed that this baby would be born in Nazareth and I'm all ready for that. And now I have to go, I have to go to, to Bethlehem. 70 miles away. What if we have the baby on the way? What if something happens? What if something goes wrong? God is fulfilling his promise. Now, I want you to take this from Mary's point of view. A lot of times we'll see the nativity scene during Christmas and you'll have, you know, uh, I'm just kind of thinking out loud. You have Mary and Joseph, you know, and you'll have the baby in the manger and you have the donkeys and the cows and the animals around and it just looks surreal and it's all peaceful and pleasant and it's all beautiful and everybody's happy and smiling. That's, I mean, that's, that's good. 
But don't romanticize what actually happened. I mean, it says that he was, it doesn't exactly tell us where he was born, but he was born in a place where they keep animals. So it could have been a stable, it could have been a cave, could have been a place where, where the animals were kept. And they placed him in a manger. So imagine this, all of you with children who have ever been in the room when your baby gets born, you imagine Mary is probably laying in the dirt having a baby. She's probably laying on the ground in the dirt having a baby. And you know what all that entails. She's screaming and pushing and there's pain and there's blood and there's... Can you imagine what Mary's thinking? This is not what I thought would happen when God said, you're going to bring forth the Messiah. I mean, you can imagine the the Messiah, the one we've been waiting on, the one that all of Israel has has been looking forward all this time. He's going to come and there's going to be, you know, it's going to be a royal welcome. The people are going to line up in the streets. They're going to be hailing him and and and, and praising him. And I'm going to get to be his mother and 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 God's going to save his people. It's just going to be such a glorious thing. And here she was in a town that really they probably had some relatives there, but they didn't know most people. A lot of people had come to register for this tax and here they were no room for them to go anywhere other than wherever this place was where animals were kept she's laying in the dirt for having a baby now seriously most people today don't even want to have a baby at home just for fear of things that could go wrong things that might happen they used to have babies at home all the time pretty much now we want everything there at the hospital we want everything in case this happens in case she is there lying in the dirt having a baby this promised baby this is not what she thought when she said lord let it be done to me as you said i can promise you This is not how she expected. You can imagine because she was there in a place where they kept animals and they they put him in a manger. You can imagine as she's having this baby, there's people all in Bethlehem. They all came to register for the tax. And that's why there was no room for them anywhere. And so there was probably people walking by this place where she's laying on the ground, having a baby in 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 the midst of all this. There's people walking by and there's smells of, I mean, animals and manure and just, it's just gross. It's just gross and it's nasty and it's not what she expected. But we know the story, don't we? We read it all the time and we think, wow, Mary, what? Mary had Jesus in the stable and put him in the manger. And his, But sometimes we don't get the whole picture. I wonder what Mary was thinking. At the time that she's laying in the dirt, in the, in the mud, in the, in the place where the animals walk, in the place where the animals go to the bathroom. And she's having this king of kings. This baby, at this time, people walking by this place where she's having, he was even lower than the common people in Bethlehem. He didn't look like a king. Didn't look like king of kings. Didn't look like anything. I mean, this was this was the this is about as low as you could possibly get. But that's the point. Jesus, the eternal son of God, took on flesh, became a man. And the first time that he opened his human eyes, what did he see? Did he see a royal welcome? Did he see people lined up to honor him? Thank you for coming. Thank you for being here to save us. Thank you for coming to redeem our... 
No, he saw animals. And his first smell in this world, I was going to say something else, but it's manure. His first experience in this world is having his mom hold him in the midst of this dirty, filthy, back alley stable somewhere or wherever it was. And they laid him in a manger. God is working. We know the story. And so it's easy for us to understand. We read it every Christmas. But God, understand, God is working to fulfill his promise. But this is not what Mary thought. I can guarantee you. It's not what Mary thought when she said, okay, I'm in. I'm trusting you. Let it be done to your servant. And sometimes in our lives, God is not working the way you think he should, but he's always working. This is not this is not the kind of birth. This is not the kind of king that Mary expected to be born here. But it was the kind of king that we needed if we're going to be saved. Because Jesus didn't come to be honored and gloried here on this earth. He came to redeem us from the same filth that he was born in. He came to redeem us from the same ugliness and the same wretchedness. He came to be as we are. He came to feel what we feel. He came to be hungry and to be and to thirst and to be ridiculed and to be beaten. He came as a king, as a man, to submit himself unto death. So that we could have life. This is not how we would have expected it to happen. But God is still faithful to his promise. The last two verses we read, verse six and seven, it says, and so it was, so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her, brought forth her firstborn son. She wrapped him in swaddling clothes and she laid him in a manger because there was no room. There was no room for him in the end. She bore the king of kings in the dirt, in the stable, in the place where animals were kept. He was born, he was born in filth to redeem us from filth. This is not what we expected. God is in control. God had, listen... God had prophesied, God had promised in Micah that he would be born in Bethlehem. And when they got to Bethlehem, of course, you know the story, there's no room. And so they had to go to where the animals were kept. And that's where they stayed. And that's where the baby was born. God ordained that they would be, it would be born in Bethlehem. He had said it hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. And so this was God's plan. It was God's plan that he would be born and laid in a manger. But it sure was unexpected. He didn't work the way that we think he should. I've told you before, if I was the son of God, eternal son of God, uh, had from, from all eternity, and I decided to become a man, I'm telling you, I'm going to come, I'm going to be the king of men. All right? I'm going to come, I'm going to be born in a palace, and all of y'all are going to bow down and worship me if I'm the son of God, and I'm born as a man. And if y'all don't, I'm going to lightning bolt some of y'all. But that's not how he came. He humbled himself for you. He became of no reputation. He made himself of no reputation for you. And he was born in the likeness of a servant, of a slave. He didn't look like the king of kings, but he certainly was. Last thing we'll see. God is working. God is working for your real problem. 
You got all kind of issues. I know you do. We live in this world. We live in, we live in flesh. We've got all kind of deals. We've got financial troubles. We've got relationship troubles. We've got job troubles. We've got family issues. We've got all those kind of things. And God works in all those things. That, I mean, you've seen it over and over again. But God's main purpose for your life, people look for God's will in their life all the time. I can tell you what God's will is for your life, and I'm not a prophet nor a prophet's son, but I can tell you that his will for you is that you be conformed to the image of his son. That's his will for you. And he is working for your real problem, which is sin. He's working for your real problem, which is the flesh in which we dwell that is fighting against God. He's working to conform you to the image of his son. He does work in all of our other troubles, all of our financial struggles, all of our things, all the stuff we got going on. But this story that we read here about Jesus' birth is not just about the fact that God is, God is here to help you and he's here to make your life better and he's here. It's about God sending his son to redeem us from slavery to sin, to save us from the grave, to save us from hell itself and from the wrath of God that is ready to be poured out upon us if we refuse the the sacrifice that he has sent god is working for your real problem we read this about there's no room for him in the end and we, we there's lots of songs about you know will you please make room for jesus you know there's no room for him in the end god didn't send his son to swell up pity inside of you to say oh that's so terrible just give jesus a little space God didn't send his son for you to sweep out a corner of your life and say, there, Jesus, I made you some room. God didn't send his son so you could see Jesus born in in a, a stable somewhere or where animals were kept and be placed in a manger and that stir up goodness in you and say, oh, that's so terrible. Let me just make some room for Jesus so he can come in my life. Jesus doesn't want a corner of your house swept out so he can inhabit that. He wants the whole thing. He wants your life, every bit of it. He wants every corner, every shelf, every room in your house. He doesn't want you just to scoot some stuff over so you can make room for Jesus. He wants to be king of kings and Lord of lords. Let me rephrase that. He is the king of kings and Lord of lords. And you're either going to decide today whether you're going to submit to this king or whether you're going to rebel against this king. But make no mistake, he is king. He is king of kings and Lord of lords. So when we talk about making room for Jesus, I understand what you mean. And in a sense, that's exactly right. Today, you're going to decide whether you're going to rebel against this king. But don't think that you're just going to go about your life and you're just making a little room in the corner of the living room here. So Jesus can have that spot over here and I'm going to keep all this other stuff for me. That's not what we're talking about. God is working for your real problem and that is sin. That sin and death that has you held, it has you as a slave to it. And in order for that slavery to be broken, you have to repent of your sin and you have to trust completely in this Savior who was born and laid in a manger and who lived a perfect life, never breaking God's law, fulfilling righteousness for you and I and dying on a cross so that you and I could be free from the wrath of God. So when we talk about, when we talk about There was no room for him in the end. The point was that Luke was making is no one cared. No one cared. Nobody in Bethlehem cared that there was a king of kings being delivered 
in a place where animals dwell. No one cared. They probably walked by as Mary was screaming and pushing. They, they probably walked by as this baby cried in the middle of the night as he was born. They probably, nobody, nobody cared at all. But the fact that nobody cared is just a symptom of the real problem. It's not that, oh, don't you care? Please make Jesus some room. That's not the problem. The problem is we're slaves to our sin before Christ freezes. The problem in Bethlehem was like, was not, oh, you know, it's just poor little baby Jesus needs somebody to make him some room. That is the symptom of the real problem. The real problem is that this world is bound in darkness and kept in the grave. This world is destined for wrath. This world is is seeping deeper and deeper and deeper into the condemnation of God. And that's why no one cared. Jesus didn't come just so you would feel sorry for him and make some room in your life for him. He came to redeem this world from the darkness that it was kept in and the reason why nobody cared. He came to address the real problem that faces you and I today, and that is our sin. Light came into the world, but darkness didn't receive it. Why? Because men love their evil works. That's in John chapter one. They did not receive him. Not because, oh, they just didn't care. And poor little baby Jesus. It's because they're slaves to their sin. You and I are slaves to our sin before Christ frees us. He didn't come. He didn't come to have the back house that you can that you can spare to make room, move your stuff out of the way and let Jesus just have a little room. He came to rule and to reign in your life. God is make no mistake. God is in control. And you can have rest in the fact that he is always working to fulfill his word, always working to fulfill his promise, always. And we can rest in the fact that his word will always be fulfilled. His promises will always be done. It may happen in ways that you might not expect. You may have to go through some things. Sometimes you may ask and he says, no, that's not what's best for you. That's not what's going to work out for your your best. That's not what I want for you. But he's always going to be working. But you and I need to understand that he is working for your real problem. It reminds me of the man that was let down through the roof. You know, the paralytic man let down through the roof. What did Jesus say? It always baffled me. What did Jesus say to him? He came because he couldn't walk. The guys brought him because they believed Jesus could heal his legs. And they let him down through the roof. And what did Jesus say? Did he say, son, take up your bed and walk? No, not at first. What did he say? The first thing he said, it's almost like all he was going to do, he said, son, your sins are forgiven. He addressed the man's real problem. And it's almost like if you go and read that text, it's almost like Jesus went back to teaching, went back to normal. And it was the Pharisees that were there who said, who is this that thinks he can forgive sins? And it was then that Jesus said, is it harder for me to say your sins are forgiven or to take up your bed and walk? He says, but so you'll know that the son of power, son of man has power. He says, take up your mat and walk. And then he healed his legs. The real problem that you and I face is not your finances. It's not your relationships. It's not your, it's not all the things that, that go on in our life that make life hard to live and, and, and war with us. The real problem is our sin. And that's what this story is about. It's not about, oh, come on, y'all. 
Let's just make some room for Jesus. It's about you and I are slaves to sin and God sent his deliverer to redeem us from that sin. He has kept his word. He has kept his promise to us. And today you're going to decide whether you're going to rebel against that king or you're going to submit yourself to that king. We've heard it here many, many times. It's not about whether you're going to accept Jesus. It's about whether Jesus is going to accept you. So the last thing I'll say and we'll go. If you don't have room for Jesus. What I'd say to you today, what the text I believe is saying to you today is not. Come on, guys, make some room. If you don't have room for Jesus, that's a symptom of a really bigger problem. And that bigger problem is that you are still a slave to your sin. You are still under the wrath of God. Because when God saves a person, when Jesus enters into a person's life and they are born again, their life revolves around Jesus. It's not, it's not an issue of cleaning out a corner so Jesus can have some room. If your life has no time for Christ, if you have no room for Jesus in your daily life, in your daily walk, what you need to do is not sweep out a corner so he can have a place to lay. What you need to do is examine yourself whether you be of the faith or not. Because God is working for your real problem, and that's sin and death that keeps us. Today, submit yourself to this King of Kings who has died on Calvary's tree so that you could be redeemed and you could be brought into the family of God and you could be forgiven of your sin. Submit to him. Trust in him. Repent of your sin and believe the gospel. Father, we love you and we thank you today for your word. Thank you for all that you've given us. Thank you that you are in control. There is no doubt about it.